Well, there was a guy named Sky Jathani who wrote a book called With. That's the title of the book. And he tells a story about a college seminary professor named Scott McKnight who every year when his uh, freshman class comes in, he gives them this test. And he teaches at Northern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this test, it begins with a series of questions about what the students think Jesus is like. And some of the questions are, was Jesus or is Jesus moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party or is he more of an introvert? And so there's 24 questions asking about what Jesus is like. And then there's another set of 24 questions that are slightly altered. And in these questions, the students answer questions about their own personalities. And McKnight is not the only professor that does this. Other people have administered this quiz, and it has been tested by other professionals as well. But the results are remarkably consistent in this test. Everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. Isn't that amazing? So when you answer the questions about Jesus, and then you answer the questions about yourself, you try to make them match up because you want to think that Jesus is like you. And in some cases, that's true, but we're not supposed to be bringing Jesus to be more like us. We're supposed to be being more like Jesus, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing, following Him. So interestingly enough, McKnight's personality questionnaire confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire said three centuries ago. If God has made us in His image, we have returned Him the favor. Interesting if you can, can get that. Well, last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, that's okay, but we talked about a, a passage, a quite hard passage um, from Luke's gospel where Jesus described what it is, and he clearly laid out what it is to follow him. And in that passage, he talks about the cost of following him. And in that cost, we're not the kinds of things that we are attracted to, that people would be attracted to when you hear them. In that cost, we're not the kind of things that you would promote that would recruit people to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus. They even seemed, if you remember, as irrational or absurd. Now, if you weren't here, these are the requirements Jesus said in this passage. He says, if you don't hate your father and mother, if you don't hate your wife and children, if you don't hate your brothers and sisters, hate your own life, you can't be my disciples. And when you hear that, you go, what in the world? I ain't doing that. I don't want to know if I want to follow Jesus that bad. He says, if you don't carry your cross, if you don't give up everything you have, you can't be my disciple. I'm not making this up, y'all. This is what Jesus said, and it's hard to hear that. But Jesus didn't seem to be concerned with what was attractive or what would be a good PR campaign or a good recruiting campaign. He said, this is the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus stood a lot of the cultural and religious principles and practices of his time on their head. He frustrated a lot of people. He left many people thinking that he was irrational, maybe crazy, and he didn't seem to care whether they thought that or not. Jesus authentically wanted people to know that if you're going to follow me, these are the things that you're going to have to do in your life. It requires a change. The necessity of ridding our lives of those things which truly keep us from following him. And there's a lot of things in our culture that keeps us from following Jesus, aren't there? A lot of stuff that distracts us. And as we think about what it means to not just be an admirer of Jesus, like I talked about last week, but a true follower of Jesus, the expectations can seem unrealistic. And again, we might say, I could never reach that kind of standard. I can't say, uh, you know, I'm going to hate my family and I'm going to give up everything. I just can't do that. But when we think about the 12 
disciples of Jesus, those who were closest to him. And it wasn't just those 12 men. There were women that followed Jesus as well that we know about. There were lots of followers. And those who followed Jesus, they were not the elite religious type of their culture or their times. They didn't seem to measure up or attain those requirements, at least not initially. It's a process. It was a process for them. And Jesus knew they didn't meet the standards of a religious Pharisee or a Sadducee, but he didn't care. He wanted them. He called them right where they were. And he still taught them. He still invested in them. He pointed them to a time where they would carry on his work, that kingdom work, even after he left. And they didn't always understand that, but Jesus kept saying, you are going to carry on this work when I leave. And it was a process, and it's a process with us as well. When we become a Christian, everything that was a part of our old life doesn't magically go away. It's a process of getting those, rid of those things and surrendering to, to Christ. But what we do see in those first century disciples of Jesus is that when they saw the resurrected Jesus, it transformed them. And when they experienced on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit coming into their lives, it transformed them, and they started to become who they never thought they could be on their own through the power of Jesus and the, and the Holy Spirit. And we also see that they were able to be much better followers in community with other followers than they could be on their own. Now, I want us to look at a text today from Matthew's Gospel. We got the four, first four uh, uh, gospels in the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these are all uh, people who wrote from a perspective of who, what was Jesus, who was he, and his life. And so we're going to look at Matthew's gospel. But he's going to, uh, I think, touch on two things in this. One, who he is. He wants to make clear who he is to his disciples. And two, something that was to come in the future called the church. And he's going to explain that. So let's look at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Thanks for having that up there. So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now that last line always kind of went, what? You say something of that significance, and then you tell everybody, but don't tell anybody. Now, obviously, they told a lot of people. Y'all realize we're sitting here today because they told people, right? But ultimately, at that point, Jesus was somehow trying to say, be careful where you say that right now, because the religious leaders, when they hear that, ultimately, that's why they put Jesus on the cross and killed him, because you can't say you're the Son of God unless you really are. And Jesus goes, and... I really am, but they didn't believe that. They didn't want to believe that, and that's ultimately what got him killed. But let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Jesus was obviously used to having people ask him, who are you, who he was, who is this, this obscure guy from Nazareth, from Galilee, who was a carpenter for 30 years, and all of a sudden he's beginning to go around and preach, and he works miracles. But he wants, in this text, his disciples to make sure and be very clear on who he is, that he is the Messiah, 
the Son of the living God. And obviously there were many people were saying who they thought Jesus was. And Jesus' disciples had seen him heal diseases in people. He had seen him heal blind people, people who were leprous, who were lame. He had watched them raise a little girl from the dead. They had watched him calm a storm through his words, walk on water. And most recently, leading up to this text specifically, Jesus had fed over 5,000 people with just a few fish and a few pieces of bread. Now, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, you're like, I'm convinced. After seeing all that, I'm convinced that this has to be of God. This man has to be of God. He has to be who he said he was. Now, we don't know um, uh, if there were multiple hands up when Jesus asked that question. As we read that, it says Jesus asked, but what about you, you disciples? Who do you say that I am? And I was wondering, was everybody holding their hand up? And Jesus goes, "Um, all right, Peter, what about you? I don't know that. We don't know what the situation was. But we do know in Matthew's gospel, and then we look at Mark's gospel in chapter 8, and Luke's gospel in chapter 9, that all three of those gospels say, because they tell the same story, that Peter was the one that spoke up and said, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And Peter was not afraid to say that. He was convinced. And maybe it was because... Peter also had all these things that I just mentioned, the healings and the little girl being raised and walking on water. But uh, Peter remembers when Jesus first called him. He was fishing, and he said, hey, I want you to uh, throw your net on the other side. And he's probably going, who is this carpenter telling me how to fish? This is what I do for a living. What does he know about it? But he throws the net on the other side, like Jesus said, and all of a sudden he pulls in this huge number of fish, and he was like, he, he bowed down at Jesus' feet and says, I'm not worthy. So he was convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And you may have noticed that when someone comes to accept Jesus here at this church or comes to be baptized at this church or comes to join our church here, we ask that they make this very confession that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord, my Savior, my life. We ask people to say what Peter said all those years ago. You heard Molly do it last week. You heard Abigail a a week or so ago and Renee do it a week or so ago. So we've heard people make that confession. We had a couple people join in the first service, and they made that same confession because we are trying to stay biblically uh, sound to what we do and practice, even from something from the first century. It's powerful to hear that and realize in the 21st century, we need to come to the same realization and make the same decision that Peter did and others did throughout all the centuries, from Peter from the first all the way through these other Uh, centuries, 20 centuries leading up to this 21st century that people have said, I believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the son of the living God. And Jesus makes it clear that Peter did not have this revealed to him by man. He says flesh and blood, but he's talking about humans. But by his father in heaven, God chose Peter just like he's chosen us. Jesus chose Peter to be his disciple. And Peter accepted this. When he saw, he believed And he says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now this rock, now he changes Peter's name. It was Simon, and he calls him the rock Peter now. But he's also saying this rock seems to be the very confession that Peter made. Not Peter himself. The church is not going to be built on Peter himself. It's not on a human. Because when the church is built on a human, what happens? It's going to fail, isn't it? Because we are humans and we are not perfect. But he says, not you are not what the church is built on, but what you just said, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's the foundation of the church. It's not the pastors. 
It's not the leadership. It's not the building. It's not the worship team, no matter how great they are. It's not the children's ministry or the student ministry, however great it is, or the programs, the church. That is not the foundation of the church. It's Jesus and Him being Lord and Savior. And all those other things must point people to and grow out of that foundation. It has to be. And this seems to be the first mention of the church in the Bible right here. And Jesus talks about His church. On this rock, this confession, I will build my church. And the Greek word here, actually, the New Testament was written in Greek. I had to take this in seminary, and I was not good at it. I was even worse in Hebrew. Hebrew, you read from... um, Left to right. You know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, right to left. It was crazy. I didn't do very good, but I had to study it. But this word is from the Greek, ekklesia, and it means the called out ones or a gathering of the called out ones from their home to a public place for something really, really important. Now, the Jews, the assembling of people called out of their homes to a public place, had been done for hundreds of years. Because, see, we can get messages on our phones and on our computers, but in those days, everybody didn't have all that technology. So when something big needed to be announced, they called everybody, as many people, out of their homes to some big place and say, we've got a big announcement. And then they would send couriers to different places who maybe couldn't be to that particular gathering, but they would send these couriers out to another gathering somewhere where they called people out from their homes to hear the good news or to hear the news, whatever it may be. And this assembling of people called out had been done for hundreds of years. And the Jews were used to it being in a synagogue or a temple. But what is this new thing called ecclesia? But Jesus seems to be referring to a new type of assembly that is coming. His assembly, His gathering, His church. And I think it's interesting that this word ecclesia in the Greek is feminine. And you go, feminine? When did words, are we getting weird with that like all the other stuff in our culture? No. In the Greek language, you have tenses, and there can be a masculine, a feminine, or a neuter. That's how it's, I don't know. But I think it's fascinating here that this particular word is feminine. And Paul, being a word study, he did really good at languages, unlike me. And he was a Pharisee. He was a, uh, you know, he studied the law, and he recognized this, and he realized that as he's writing his letters, he said, the church is the bride of Christ. He understood that, and he pointed that out in several of his letters. And that this powerful connection that Jesus was married to his church, and we're called out to be his bride as a body. We are the bride of Christ. And Jesus reminds us that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Does that scare anybody? Hades? What is Hades? Well, Jesus mentions this, but one of the better interpretations to the meaning of this phrase is as follows. In the ancient times, you knew a lot of uh, the cities were surrounded by walls. When a group of people decided to build the city, they would put walls around it, and they would have this huge gate on the front. And in battles, the gates of these cities would usually be the first place that the enemies assaulted to try to get in and take over this other city or this other group of people. This was because the protection of the city was determined by the strength or the power of its gate. So they put a lot of money, time, and attention into this gate of their city. As such, the gates of hell or the gates of Hades means the power of Hades. The name Hades was originally the name of this god, which a lot of Greek and Roman gods 
believed in. Uh, and he presided over the realm of the dead and was often referred to as the house of Hades. It designated the place to which everyone who departs from this life, when they die, they end up in Hades. It's the realm of the dead, regardless of their moral character. Now, Jesus told a story about this. You remember there was a man named Lazarus. And there was another guy, and they were in Hades. They had both died, but one was on this part because of his behavior, and this guy was on another. And this one guy was trying to say, hey, let him dip his finger and give me some, uh, some relief over here. And, goes, and he goes, no, 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 no. You had all that stuff in your life, but it's not going to be that way. It's over now. This is where there's a chasm between those two. So Jesus talked about this in other places. But in the New Testament, Hades is the realm of the dead. And in this verse, Hades or hell is represented as a mighty city with its gates representing its power. And Jesus refers to his impending death here. Though he would be crucified, though he would be buried, he would rise from the dead and build his church. Again, that word, ecclesia. And Jesus is emphasizing the fact that the powers of death could not hold him. He was able to overcome them. Not only would the church be established in spite of the powers of Hades or hell, but the church would thrive in spite of these powers. The church will never fail, though generation after generation succumbs to the powerful or physical death. There will be other generations after them that will perpetuate and continue the church. And it's true. Now, we don't really think about this. We go, yeah, the church will always be around. But when you think about people who are in a place right now trying to meet as the body of Christ this morning in a country where they say, you're not going to do that. And there are people right now while we're meeting who are meeting in fear that there might be a policeman or somebody in the military that's going to come and turn them all in. We can't even, I can't even comprehend that, but they're still meeting today. And I praise God for those people. They understand this passage more than anybody else. You can't prevail against us. But what we do know about persecuted countries is what? When that persecution comes, yes, it's awful and it's terrible, but guess what happens to the church? Does it stop? It grows, doesn't it? It grows in spite of that because God says you can't prevail with that. Not even the gate of Hades can prevail against my church. And we have seen that's been true generation after generation. So throughout history, humans have tried to stop that. But the called out ones, they have never prevailed against them. And this is another reminder of who Jesus is and establishing of his church. And if we're going to be true followers of Jesus, then we must be able to say and believe that he really is the Messiah, the Son of God, and be a part of the assembly of God. Those who are called out, the ecclesia. That means we come out of what we're, we're going to do today, out of our homes, out of our restaurants, out of whatever else we were going to do today, and we're going to assemble together to praise God. And that's important. God calls us to do that. So those of you at home who are watching, I'm so thankful for this um, technology that we can, you can watch us at home, and we're, we're blessed to have that. But that's not where you're supposed to be long term. And I hope you'll be back soon. Don't we hope they'll be back soon? We want them here with us, right? Exactly. We can clap about that. Because we are called out of that one place to assemble together in person to worship God. We need that. Y'all don't know how much it encourages me every Sunday to see you here. And I hope you're encouraged by the people you see here by being here together, singing these songs, listening to his word. That is important, being a part of the bride of Christ. And are we willing to do that? Or do we look at the church as just a club we join? It's like the Kiwanis, or it's like something, I, I pay my dues, I, I said whatever I had to say to get in and to get the discount, and then I'm just going to go on and keep living my life. Man, that's never what Jesus intended for the church to be, for us to stay the same and just go, yeah, I'm a member of that church. 
But are you a member of the body of Christ? Are you being his bride? Being a follower of Jesus requires not just a confession, but a life change. A life change. And that life change takes place in the community of the called out ones. And we are called out, but will we come out? Jesus calls all of us, but will we come out? I want to share an illustration. In 2014, Rolling Stone magazine interviewed Bill Gates. Y'all know who Bill Gates is. And in those questions, they asked him, do you believe in God? And Gates said that he believes science has now filled in some explanations for disease and, and the weather. But after admitting that science can't explain everything, Gates shared an intriguing comment about his openness to God. Listen to what he says. The mystery and the beauty of the world is overwhelmingly amazing. And there's no scientific explanation of how it came about. To say that it was generated by random numbers, that does seem, you know, sort of an uncharitable view. And he laughed a little bit when he said that. I think it makes sense to believe in God, but exactly what decision in your life you make differently because of it, I don't know. Isn't that an interesting comment? He believes in God, but again, what decision in your life you make differently because of that belief, I don't know. Now, Bill Gates, as you all know, is an intelligent man. He's a wealthy man, but he's also a very generous man. But out of his intelligence, he's figured out this, didn't, this Microsoft thing that I developed, it didn't just happen accidentally. It was something that was a product of my mind that God gave me. And I developed it through years and years of research. You know, what did he start in his garage, right? And he built this huge empire called Microsoft. So he knows things don't happen by accident. There has to be an intelligent mind behind them. But what he doesn't quite get yet, and he's still lost in this, is, is that I believe in God, but exactly how does that make a difference in the decisions I make in my life? He's still a little lost. But I'm encouraged that he's open to that. And that's the good news about it. But we have to decide that when, if there is a God and he sent his son, Jesus, into the world that died for us and rose again for us, that we need that. And that does affect every aspect of my life. Not just coming to a club on Sunday. It has to affect every aspect of my life. Well, Ray Ortland, in an article he wrote, What Does It Mean to Accept Jesus, has another great illustration that I think will help us. He says this, You and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. You might be going, what? Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a boardroom in all of our hearts. Imagine a big table with leather chairs, coffee, and bottled water sitting on the table, and a whiteboard. And a committee sits around the table of your heart and my heart. There's a social self. There's a private self, there's the work self, there's the sexual self, there's the recreational self, there's the religious self, and other selves around that table of our heart. And the committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. Do y'all ever feel like that inside your heart? I can't make a decision because, man, I just, I, I'm, I'm all over the place. Well, what do they think about it? Well, what do they think about it? Well, what if I do this? What will they be mad? Will they be happy? Uh, uh, I feel that. I think this is very um, practical here. So the committee, rarely can they come to unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. But the truth is, is that we're just divided. We're just unfocused. We're hesitant and we're unfree. 
And that kind of person can accept Jesus in two ways, he says. One way is to invite him in on the committee. Give him a vote too. But then he becomes just one more complication around that table. The other way is to accept Jesus is to say this. My life isn't working, Jesus. Please come in and fire the whole committee. Fire everybody around that table. Get rid of them. And I'll hand myself over to you. I'm your responsibility. Please run my whole life for me. Accepting Jesus is not adding Jesus. It's also subtracting all the idols and the things in our lives that distract us from us. And that's hard, isn't it? But that is the way Jesus presented true discipleship. And it doesn't happen overnight. I'm not so naive as to believe, y'all, that when we accept Jesus, that all of a sudden, all the stuff in my life that's keeping me from Jesus is just going to go away and vanish. It takes time, doesn't it? It means changing the way we think. And that's what Paul talked about. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that takes a process. And so Jesus as Lord and Savior and Son of the living God has to be the foundation of our lives, but it also has to be the foundation of our church. If a church doesn't have that, they're not really being the church that God called them to be. And we have to follow Jesus in being His called out ones and continue to call others out, not to embarrass them, not to make them feel guilty or to shame them, but to call them out to the joy that we've experienced because we have found Jesus in our lives. So maybe there's here today somebody that needs to do that. It says, you know, I'm tired of that boardroom in my heart. It drives me nuts. It's killing me. I'm ready to fire all of them and let Jesus come in and help me make those decisions. Maybe there's somebody here today that needs to do that. And we're going to offer that opportunity this morning. Or maybe you're looking for a church home. And we are not a perfect church, y'all. We have our flaws. But we are committed. We are committed at this church to being the church that God calls us to be in the world. And to be that church that believes he is the foundation. He's our Lord and he's our Savior. So oh, we're gonna, they're going to lead us in a, in a song here, our, our, our worship uh, team. And uh, I'm going to ask um, if y'all have a decision to make. Uh, we're going to stand together right now and y'all are going to sing with them. If you have a decision to make, we ask that you come forward. I'll try to walk you through that. And while we're singing this song, we're also preparing our hearts, y'all, for communion. If you're a, a guest with us today, we do communion every Sunday. Hope you got that little packet as you were coming in. If you didn't, you can sneak out there and get you one. And we take communion every week to remind us of that atoning work of Christ on the cross. And so let's help prepare our hearts as we take that together. You don't have to be a member of our church to take that. If you're a believer, we invite you to be a part of that. So let's uh, prepare our hearts as, as the uh, praise band leads us. <clears throat>